All right, well, we've got a lot of Matthew 24 and 25 to read this morning. Um, We're going to read chapter 24, beginning in verse 45, all the way through Matthew chapter 25. I I want us to catch the flow of what's going on. I want us to see how connected it is and experience the text, uh, maybe a little bit more as it was being received initially by the disciples. You do realize that they didn't say, Jesus, we've got about two and a half minutes, so uh, we just want a few verses from you. Uh, Would that be okay? (laughs) (laughs) This is one discourse. This is one conversation. This is one set of teaching that Jesus is giving to the disciples in response to a question that they asked. And so if we read a larger section of text, then we may be able to catch that in a little bit uh, of the way that they received it. So Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 45. Hear now the word of the Lord. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will say, will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness into eternal life. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You guys thought I was going to read 26 too, didn't you? I was just trying to get you. So today we will break the barrier from Matthew chapter 24 into Matthew chapter 25. And as we break that barrier, what we'll discover is that in Matthew chapter 25, the Lord Jesus is talking about exactly the same thing that he was talking about in Matthew 24. That's what we will discover. Now, most Bible teachers propose that there is a transition somewhere in Matthew chapter 25, wherein Jesus ceases his discourse on the end of the age, that being the end of the Old Covenant with its Levitical priesthood, animal sacrifices, and the like, he ceases talking about that and begins a discourse about the end of the world. If you've read 
pretty much any commentator at all or done any research on this passage, then you know that at some point, every, every commentator is going to posit a transitional break wherein Jesus ceases those things he was talking about in chapter 24, the end of the age, and begins to talk about the end of the world. But as I'll show you this morning, no such transition takes place in the discourse. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is still answering the disciples' loaded question about the end of the age from Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, all the way up to Matthew chapter 26, verse 1, where Matthew finally does transition us away from Jesus' answer to that question with the words, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. That is the only transitional phrase that you will find in Matthew 24 to 26. It's the only transitional phrase. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, that being all of the sayings related to the question that he's been answering about the destruction of the temple and the end of the Old Covenant age. Now, most interpreters try to locate the transition away from Jesus' answer to the disciples' question far earlier in the text than Matthew actually makes it. And I understand why they do. I understand why they do. When Christians begin to read these texts carefully, and perceive what Jesus is actually talking about, that being the end of the age and not the end of the world, and they perceive when he's talking about those things happening within his own generation, they start to get really nervous, like some of you look like you are right now. <laughs> start to get really, really nervous. They start to wonder where the church even got her doctrine of the end of the world and a final judgment if it isn't in the passages that we're considering in Matthew 24 and 25. And then they get especially nervous when they realize through further study that the other places in the New Testament that speak of the end all speak of that end coming quickly because they're also talking about the end of which Jesus is speaking here. They were looking forward to the end of the Old Covenant age and they knew from Christ to expect it within their generation. And that's why they wrote things like this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Listen. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, and so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So John says that he and his contemporaries were living when? In the last hour. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, The end is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter said that the end was at hand while he was living. You see, Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. Everybody forgets Revelation 1, 1 when they're interpreting the rest of Revelation. Listen to what the very first verse says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, John, to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Anybody ever notice verse 1 when you're studying Revelation? Says that the, he says that the contents, the events of the book of Revelation, were going to take place soon. Do you see that? Do you feel the force of those passages? And those are samples. We could find that eminence language filling up the pages of the New Testament. Because, in fact, the whole New Testament carries this language and expectation of an imminent, fast-approaching judgment and end that they perceived to be right on top of them. Because the Lord Jesus told them that it was indeed right on top of them, within their own generation, that they would witness the things that Jesus teaches in Matthew 24 and 25. And again, the expectation of the nearness of those things fills up the pages of the New Testament. 
So again, when Christians begin to read and interpret the Bible this way, they get really nervous. And they start to wonder, well, is this it then? Is this it then? If all, of the, if all of the verses that I thought were about the end of the world are actually about the end of the Old Covenant, then is the current state of the world the permanent state of the world? Has the entire church been wrong to expect an end of history and a worldwide judgment that wraps everything up and brings in a full, evident, and obvious new heavens and new earth that's not just perceived by faith, but, but by sight as well? Has the church been wrong in this expectation? Some of the discomfort that many of you have felt during the last few sermons has to do with the fact that you felt the danger of that very question lurking in your soul while Pastor Luke and I were doing our exposition of Matthew 24. And you, you weren't dummies. You were thinking, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What are the implications of this? It made you uneasy. Well, today I have the pleasure of helping you rest easy again. You do know I, I waited until five minutes in to say that because I just like the tension a little bit. <laughs> you are right to expect a greater fulfillment of these things that we've been learning about in Matthew 24 and we'll consider today in Matthew 25. You're right to anticipate a greater historical crescendo than has yet been documented in history. And you're right to anticipate a final physical return of the Lord Jesus, wherein he allows us to walk by faith into sight, wherein all that he has promised is seen to be done in a glorious, undeniable, and tangible way. This isn't it. The current state of the world is not its permanent state, and the entire church has not misunderstood the Bible's teaching about a final and ultimate end. But before we get there, let me say this. Because modern-day Christians are rightly looking forward to the end that I was just describing, we have a tendency to underestimate and improperly appreciate the importance of the end of the age that took place in the first century. We're so laser-focused on what's in our future that we have a tendency to underestimate the importance of the first century fulfillment about which we have been speaking. In fact, to our way of thinking, many of you have likely felt as if Luke and I have taken once very serious passages about the end of the world and kind of ruined them for you a little bit. You took stuff that used to seem so weighty and significant and serious about the end of the world, and you're telling me about it's about something as small and insignificant as the end of the Old Covenant age. That's it? That's what, that's what all that grand language was about? But nothing could be farther from the truth. Hudson, stop. What we're talking about here is Yahweh ending the mechanism that had facilitated his relationship with his people for centuries. You, you feel that? We're talking about Yahweh ending the mechanism that had facilitated his relationship with his people for centuries. The temple, the priesthood, animal sacrifices, the ceremonial laws around cleanness and uncleanness. These were the defining features of God's people and the means by which they interacted with and were nourished by their God. Their identity was tethered to these things. Their relationship with their God was tethered to these things. And then Jesus tells them that those things are going to end in their generation. <laughs> Many of us have struggled to square with a different presentation of end times theology over the last three weeks that doesn't even alter our core doctrines. 
And here these people are having their entire religious system uprooted. And we're over here like, ah, I just don't really know that that's that big a deal. But because we never participated in, wrapped our lives around, or experienced our relationship with God through the old covenant means of grace, the end of that age doesn't strike you and I as being that big of a deal. We're wrong. We're wrong. The end of the old covenant age was a monumental event for those who were experiencing that transition. And beyond their subjective experience of it, it is an objectively monumental event in terms of redemptive history. We're talking about the thing toward which the entire Old Covenant was working, namely the coming of an even more glorious new covenant. All of that to say, you need not be disappointed that these texts aren't in the first instance talking about the end of the world, because they're actually talking about something that's incredibly significant. These texts are talking about the end of the covenant that was powerless to bring about the end that God desired for his world and the coming of the covenant that would, in fact, take us toward that end. So make no mistake, though these texts were originally delivered to Jesus' generation and fulfilled within it, these are our texts. These are our texts. They document our history as God's people, and as we'll see in short order, they point us forward to things yet fulfilled. Now, having established all that, we can come to an exposition of this morning's passage. So beginning in verse 45 of chapter 24, Jesus tells the first of three parables about readiness. There's the parable of the faithful and wicked servant, there's the parable of the ten virgins, and there's the parable of the talents. These parables illustrate Jesus' admonition from verse 44 of chapter 24. What what did Jesus say right before he started telling the parables? This is what he said right before the parables are told. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In the first parable, the wicked servant takes his master's delay as an invitation to do whatever he wants without fear of judgment. That's how the first parable plays out. In the second parable, five of the ten virgins were unprepared for how long the bridegroom was going to be in coming. And so they didn't have oil that they needed on hand. So they missed the bridegroom because they were resupplying when he came. In the last parable, the parable of the talents, one of the servants who was entrusted with the master's money failed to steward what was entrusted to him properly, and he was judged harshly for it when the master finally returned to settle accounts and review the performance of his servants. Now, all of those parables, rich in their own right, are all making the same basic point. There's a, a ton of detail that I'd love to have the time to, to pull out and apply for us, but we'll probably do some of that in the email and follow-up discussions and that. But all of the parables, again, rich though they are in their own right, are making a singular point. That point being, don't become lax while the Lord is away because he's returning at an unexpected time and he's coming to judge, to sift, to separate, and to solidify your eternity on the basis of what you've done temporally. That's the point that all of these parables is making. But we know that Jesus is still talking about the events that he's been describing in Matthew 24 because... He's reusing and reiterating the exact same language from chapter 4 in chapter 25 to keep it connected in our minds, not to mention the fact that he had no chapter break. (laughs) 
So in chapter 24, verse 36, he says, No one knows the day or the hour. Remember that? No one knows the day or the hour. And, and as we talked about last week, that's in response to him saying, I'm giving you these broad signs. I can tell you the timeline within your generation. I can tell you the signs to look out for, but I can't tell you the exact day or the exact hour that this judgment is going to fall and end the old covenant. Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour. And then he concludes the parables, the first two parables that he tells, with what language? That exact same phrase. Matthew 24, verse 50. The master will come on a day that the servant does not expect, and an hour he does not know. Where have we heard that before? Well, we heard it earlier in Matthew 24, when he was talking about events that everybody agrees were about the end of the Old Covenant age. And then in Matthew 25, verse 31, after everybody asserts that we've transitioned here, what does Jesus do except to use the exact same language to make sure that what he's saying in 25 is connected to what he was saying earlier in 24? Uh, so verse uh, 31, or excuse me, verse 13 of Matthew 25. He ends the parable by saying, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You see what he's doing? Same language, because he's describing the same event. And then in chapter 25, verse 31, he returns again to the language of Matthew 24 when he talks about the Son of Man coming in glory with the angels. That's the same language that he used in Matthew 24, verses 30 and 31, because again, he's referring to the same event, that being the destruction of the temple, the final Old Covenant judgment, and the end of the Old Covenant age. He's using the same language again because he's describing the same event. Jesus is making as many allusions back to what he's already said as he can in order to keep us from doing exactly what most interpreters do, which is posit that he is changing the subject at some point. He's, he's being very careful and diligent in his language to make sure that there is not a breakup of the discourse in the way that we often assume that there is. Jesus is not changing the subject somewhere along the way. So when you get to the heading that your Bible almost certainly has above verse 31 that says final judgment, you need to understand that in the first instance, that means the final old covenant judgment, not the final world-ending judgment. And the New Testament epistles strike this same note, the same note that the parables are striking, underscoring Jesus' warning to his generation, and particularly, particularly, the idea that people were going to become lax while they were waiting for what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 and 25 to occur. Did you know that the New Testament epistles are anticipating what was happening in the parables happening to them in their generation. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-4. through 4. Listen to this and have those parables about a long delay from the Master ringing in your ears. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in these last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Listen to this. And then they will say, where is the promise of his coming? 
And then he goes on to describe all of the scoffers who are mocking them, saying, why hasn't he come yet? If you've read this chapter of 2 Peter, you already know that. But here, here's the question then. Why is it that in the first century, in fact, 2 Peter was written, most scholars would say, between 65 and 68 A.D. Now, how is it that by 68 A.D., there are already people mocking the Christian church, saying, "How? where's Jesus? Why hadn't he come back yet? Why would they possibly have had that expectation such that that wasn't even, arg even an argument that they would make against Christianity as being true? Because Jesus did, in fact, say, within a 40-year time span, that's going to happen. And by 68 AD, he's only got two more years left. And so the scoffers begin to mock and jeer and say, you guys probably should just hang this thing up. But Peter goes on to say that the reason for the Lord's delay is not because he's slow, but because he's gracious. And as the gospel is spreading throughout the entire Oikomene, as we talked about, the whole Roman Empire where all the Jews were scattered, he's giving those covenant-breaking Jews an opportunity to see the outpouring of miraculous signs at the apostles' preaching and to be able to hear and see those things and to have eyewitness testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus like the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. He's giving them every possible opportunity before that hammer drops. And Peter says that's why he's waiting until the last possible hour. But make no mistake, he is coming. And of course, two years from the writing of that epistle, those scoffers who did not repent were either starved to death, burned alive, or run through with Roman swords and then met an eternal fiery end. So Matthew chapter 25 is about what Matthew 24 is about. It's all about Jesus' answer to the disciples' question that they posed in verse 3 about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age and the normal rules of biblical interpretation that we've been exercising, teaching, and demonstrating for you demand that conclusion. All of the attempts to break up the discourse fail. And so, this fact leaves us with the question posed in the prologue. This can give people a disquieted kind of uneasiness, can't it? It comes over us when we start to realize just how much sense this interpretation makes. So, so, so it's like on the one hand it's attractive and on the other hand it's terrifying. Because on the one hand you're like, oh, well yeah, no, now those verses make sense in a way that they weren't making sense before. But then it's that lurking question that at, at first you're not quite sure how to answer, are you? Okay, you've made a compelling case for a first century fulfillment of that. But again, if all the passages that I thought were talking about the end of the world are talking about the end of the Old Covenant, like has the church just gotten that expectation wrong? I want you to feel the force of that. If what we've taught you is true, then where do we get our doctrine of an ultimate end to redemptive history and a full and final judgment of all people? If the end to which the New Testament explicitly refers is the soon coming end of the Old Covenant and not the end of redemptive history, then where do we get the expectation of an end of redemptive history? Follow this carefully. The answer is that we get it from considering the Bible as a whole, not from looking for a single verse, passage, or proof text. That's very, very important. 
We get this from looking at the Bible as a whole, not from finding a single verse, passage, or proof text. It's not unlike the church's doctrine of the Trinity. Our understanding of the relationship and relatedness of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit doesn't come to us neatly summarized in one irrefutable passage of Scripture, does it? Like if somebody just walks up to you and they say, show me the verse, what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, probably we should sit down because the word Trinity actually isn't even used in the Bible. Like it's not a biblical term, so I'm going to have to explain to you from a number of biblical passages how this all kind of fits together. Do you have a minute? That's what you're going to do, isn't it? Because that's a doctrine that is reasoned to from a lot of passages of Scripture that come together to inform our understanding of the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so it is with our doctrine of the end that follows the end of the Old Covenant, an ultimate, full, and final end to redemptive history that lies ahead in our future. So here are some of the theological strands. If you'd like some more, there's there's a lot of argumentation that uh, Pastor Luke and I talked through that could uh, move in this direction. For our purposes this morning, I'm going to pick two that won't take me that long to explain. You're welcome. So here are the theological strands that the church is tied together to see an end beyond the end of which Jesus is speaking of in Matthew 24 and 25. The first is our doctrine of God. It's God's revelation of himself. Theology proper, if you're a theology nerd and know what that means. Psalm chapter 145 verse 20 says this, The Lord preserves all who love him. Listen to this. But all the wicked he will, what do you think the word is? Destroy. Okay, so that's who God is, and that's what Scripture tells us to expect God's going to do. Keep that in your head. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Listen to this but who will by no means clear the who? The guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What these texts are telling us, and plenty of others that I could stack up, these texts are telling us that God is a God of wrath, judgment, and justice. So to posit the end of the old covenant age, of which the New Testament explicitly speaks, as the only end that we should expect, is actually to alter our doctrine of God and mute the verses that tell us that who he is demands that he destroy the wicked and judge the guilty. You follow that? If this is who God is, that's not all done yet. The end of the Old Covenant is an expression of that, but it's a far cry from the ultimate expression that lies ahead. Secondly, there's... Hmm, trying to think of the best way to say this. I'll, I'll say the typological nature of Scripture in history. I know that sounds fancy and complicated. Typological nature of Scripture in history. But it's not actually fancy and complicated. You see, the Bible teaches us that God loves small beginnings that work toward grand conclusions. We've talked about that, talked about that, and talked about that, right? Sometimes we've used the word typology, sometimes we haven't. But that's basically the idea, is that God loves 
small beginnings that work toward grand conclusions. He likes to give us little types, little tastes, if you will, of greater things to come. He's revealing that all through Scripture. Here are some examples of that. You've got a tabernacle in the wilderness for God's people, right? It's basically a tent. Right? So you've got a glorified tent as the first meeting place for God and his people. And then that grows into a glorious, magnificent, and opulent temple in the days of Solomon. And just when you thought it couldn't get any bigger, you thought it couldn't get any more glorious than Solomon's temple, what do we end up with at the end of the destruction of the second temple? Well, we end up with you and me and every other believer being indwelt personally by the Holy Spirit in such a way that the temple just grew to a more grand scale than could have ever been imagined in the days of Solomon. So it started with a type of tent in the wilderness, and it grew to a glorious temple, and now it has grown to an even more glorious and still growing temple. That's the idea. Another example, you've got the exodus of God's people as Moses leads them out of slavery and into the promised land. That's glorious and it's wonderful, but the New Testament writers, what do the New Testament writers do with that event? They tell us it was only a type. It was only, it was only a small type of the greater exodus that was going to come under the greater Moses who would lead God's people to a greater and more grand promised land because he wants to set you free from the real Pharaoh, which is sin and Satan. That's that's what that historical event that we thought, can you get any more grand than the parting of a sea and the crossing through it? Can you get any more grand than the land of Canaan? And God says, of course you can. Those are just types, silly. Of course. I have a, a larger pharaoh in view who I'll slay. I have a more substantive freedom yet to give. This is also why the Bible is always picking up past events in redemptive history and recycling them, even re-prophesying them. Because the initial fulfillments that had been seen up to that point were always awaiting greater fulfillments. That's why, like we learned last week, Jesus picks up an event from the book of Daniel that had already happened, the abomination of desolation, and what does he tell the apostles except expect a greater filling up of that? We've already seen this happen. You see? So the Bible teaches us to expect events to be replayed in ways that grow and expand in glory and in gore, for that matter, until we reach a final conclusion. Now, the logical question that someone considering these things deeply would ask is this. But why expect more from Matthew 24 and 25 without someone like, I don't know, Jesus coming along and saying that we should, in fact, expect more from it? Because how did we know to expect a greater filling up of the abomination of desolation except that someone who was speaking for God said to? That's, that's a logical question to ask. I grant that point, and I agree with it. And so here's the big reveal. The Holy Spirit-inspired prophet whose prophecy causes us to look for more than 70 A.D. to fill up Matthew 24 and 25 is Moses. Heard of that guy? Reliable prophet. Speaks for God. Moses taught us to look for more than 70 A.D. when he penned Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
which tells us to expect an end of the serpent's slithering, deceiving, and plotting once and for all, leaving the people of God in the garden of his presence without sin, temptation, opposition, or enemies. That's where, at the beginning of the story, that's where God tells us history is headed, isn't it? He says, I will crush the head of the serpent, and his operations will cease. That's not yet a reality in God's world. It's being worked out. The kingdom is growing, but it has not yet arrived in its fullness. And so we expect and anticipate more because Moses said. It is a thoroughly biblical expectation to look for the growth of present realities into greater and more glorious ones. The Davidic kingship over Israel grew into Jesus' messianic kingship over the entire cosmos. The Levitical and Aaronic priesthood grew into a worldwide guild of priests. The tabernacle grew into the temple. The temple grew into this worldwide people inhabited by the Spirit of God. Moses found his better in Christ. Joseph is amplified in Christ. Joshua's victory gets augmented in Christ. On and on and on and on and on we could go, and on and on and on and on history will go until all of these themes climax in a glorious physical and felt reality that leaves us with a world in which there is no darkness, sin, or sadness when Christ, having put all of his enemies under his feet, does indeed split the skies for every eye to see as he puts down the final enemy, death. Until that day, we remember our history because it informs our present activity and our future expectations as those realities and God's work in his world do what they always do. And what is God's work in the world always doing? It grows. It grows. And so the lesson of readiness and the warning of judgment that comes to us in Matthew chapter 25 is not just a lesson for the first century audience, but a lesson for us. Because remember, what God is doing in his world is growing, it's not shrinking. Right? That, that's, the, that's the key thing to grab here. What God is doing in his world is growing, it's not shrinking. So if they needed to be ready, how much more ready ought you and I to be? You see how that works? If it's getting bigger, not smaller, how much more ready must you and I be? If they were to experience a great and terrible judgment, how much greater will the final judgment be? But for those of us who trust and obey Christ, even the greater day that follows the great day that ended the old covenant will be like the days of Noah. Even that great and final day will be for you and for me like the days of Noah as we are held safely in the ark that is Christ until that storm blows over. The land is totally and finally cleared of all enemies and we inhabit the renewed world that is being prepared for us even now. These are great and glorious realities and they are ours. Let's pray.